If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 1. And then once you get there, if you would jump down to verse 39, verse 39 in Luke chapter 1, and we are going to read through verse 56, okay? Luke 1, 39 through 56, I believe it's part 4 of our new study through the Gospel of Luke. We are timed it with the Advent season, but after Christmas we're going to keep going through uh, this Gospel. I want to do a little, something a little different. You guys like change, right? And so uh, I'm going to read for us 39 through 45, and then what I want us to do is read 46 through 56 out loud together. You think we could do that? We could do this, right? Um, and so I'm going to read 39 through 45, and then I'm going to have a stand up, and then we're going to read it out of the English Standard Version, which is what your journals are in and what is on the screen and what I am reading out of, okay? So, God's Word says, Luke 1, 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has spoken to her from the Lord. Okay, now if you would stand. Let's read this out loud together. All right, start in verse 46. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned home. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Thank you, guys. What would make you celebrate wildly and without inhibition? What kind of event or news would have to occur or be given to you for you to rejoice in such a way that you would not care what other people thought because you were so full of joy and celebration? Think about that for a second. Now, maybe you hear that question. We're primp and proper Baptists, aren't we? And we dismiss it out of hand, thinking nothing could make me do that because I'm just not, right? I'm just not the boisterous type. To that I say, that is hogwash, okay? If I walked up to you one day and just handed you a cool million dollars, okay? You would not look at it straight-faced and say, thank you for this incredible gift, right? Like an absolute robot, right? You wouldn't do that. You would celebrate, wouldn't you? Yes? There is surely something that could happen to you where you would celebrate engaging all your faculties. So for you, what would that be to make you celebrate wildly and without inhibition? This is the question that N.T. Wright opens his chapter on the Magnificat, which is this text that we're looking at today, and he says this, okay? He asks that question, he says, perhaps it would be the news that someone close to you who had been very sick was getting better and would soon be home. Perhaps it would be seeing that the floods which had threatened your home were going down again. Perhaps it would be the message that all your money worries or business worries had been sorted out and you could relax. Perhaps it would be the telephone call to say that 
you'd been appointed to a job you'd always longed for. Whatever it might be, you'd do those things, you'd do things you normally wouldn't do. <coughs> you might dance around and around with a friend. You might shout and throw your hat in the air. You might telephone everybody you could think of and invite them to a party. Bless you. You might sing a song. You might even make one up as you went along, probably out of snatches of poems and songs you already knew, or perhaps by adding your own words to a great old hymn. And if you lived in a kind of culture where rhythm and beat mattered, it'd be the sort of song you could clap your hands to or stamp on the ground. Now, he says, read Mary's song like that. He says, it's the gospel before the gospel, a fierce, bright shout of triumph 30 weeks before Bethlehem, 30 years before Calvary and Easter, it goes with a swing and a clap and a stamp. It's all about God, and it's all about revolution. It's all because of Jesus. Jesus, who's only just been conceived, not yet born, but who has made Elizabeth's baby leap for joy in her womb, and has made Mary giddy with excitement and hope and triumph. In many cultures today, it's the women who really know how to celebrate, to sing, and dance with their voices, saying things far deeper than words. That's how Mary's song comes across. In fact, this whole passage from 39 through 56 is full of rejoicing, isn't it? From Elizabeth's response to Mary's song in light of Elizabeth's declaration. Now, before we get to our main points, we need to set the scene, all right? What we see here is the two previous scenes of John's and Jesus' birth announcements converging, yes? And our present section opens with us being told that Mary went with haste to see Elizabeth. Now, recall that while Mary didn't ask for a sign from Gabriel, he gave her one anyway by telling her your relative Elizabeth was pregnant even though she was previously barren and past childbearing years. So Mary went to see Elizabeth without delay. Now Mary arrives at Zachariah and Elizabeth's house and Luke just says that Mary greeted Elizabeth. Isn't that what it says? She greeted her. She likely offered a short greeting like shalom or hello. And that is all she said. That's all she said. Luke says there was simply a greeting, no explanation of why she came. No description of the encounter with Gabriel, just the greeting. And after that hello, something amazing happens, doesn't it? The baby in Elizabeth's womb does what? Leaps. Just at the sound of Mary's voice. But that isn't that amazing, is it? Like, don't babies move around, moms? Don't babies move around in the womb all the time? I mean, Sila would always comment with how jumpy our two youngest kids were in the womb. Like, they seemingly leaped and, and flipped every few minutes, and that probably doesn't surprise you at all if you've seen the way they zoom around the hallways in the foyer here, right? So what is amazing about a baby leaping in a womb? Well, with that leaping came the filling of the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? Which Gabriel promised Zechariah would happen. And isn't it interesting, just as a side, by the way, that the first person to recognize the incarnate Christ was an unborn baby? Isn't that amazing? This should tell us also something of what John will do when he grows up, which is pointing to Jesus. Now, how does Elizabeth respond to Mary's greeting? Mary says, hello, and Elizabeth breaks out in this like psalm-esque utterance. I mean, if someone visits you at your house and they said hello when they walked in, you would not say, you would say what? Back. Hello. Not, blessed are you among men, right? <laughs> and blessed are your offspring. Maybe you should. But, so why would Elizabeth respond like that? And how on earth does Elizabeth know all about Mary being pregnant and having the incarnate Lord in her womb? It's likely that not even Mary knew she was pregnant yet. Like she knew she would be, but Gabriel get, didn't give her a time frame. And all she said when she greeted Elizabeth was, hello. She didn't give Elizabeth a detailed summary of her encounter with Gabriel at all. What Elizabeth does and says is nothing short of a divine utterance given to her by the Holy Spirit. And again, we see some foreshadowing of what we will see in Luke's gospel. The Holy Spirit for Luke, as we will see throughout our journey through this gospel, is a spirit who reveals, speaks, and guides and so he does here. And the content of her utterance is nothing short of amazing. She knows things she otherwise would not have known. She calls the baby in Mary's womb her Lord. 
a title Mary would ascribe to God in the coming verses. So for her to refer to this unborn baby as her Lord, she means more than something like master. She means in a messianic way, as, as the Spirit illumines her and reveals that this baby is the Messiah that they have been waiting for and a fulfillment of Scripture and God's promises. And this prepares us to explore how Mary responds in what's called the Magnificat in verses 46 through 55. Much canon has been said on this passage, and it's robust enough, I think, to do an entire series on. But for our purposes, I want us to consider three major points, okay, that relate to one another. Now, Ligon Duncan says that these verses, the Magnificat, which is called, just as a gee whiz, the Magnificat, because the first word in the Latin translation is magnify, and magnificat is magnify in Latin. Lady Duggan says that these verses, Mary gives us an address, a lecture on how to live the Christian life. Tim Keller even goes so far as to say that Mary is the first Christian because she's the first to hear the gospel and respond appropriately. Now remember, the magnificat is a response to all that has happened up to this point in Elizabeth's, and in, in response to Elizabeth's declaration about the baby in Mary's womb. So how should we respond to an encounter with the gospel? Like Mary encountered the gospel. Point number one, we should magnify the Lord as Mary magnified the Lord. We should magnify the Lord as Mary magnified the Lord. <coughs> this is the first thing Mary says, isn't it? Mary declares her soul magnifies the Lord. Now that word magnify means to make great, to praise, to extol. She is both stating that she will magnify the Lord and addresses it, addresses that magnification to the Lord for what he is doing through and for her and Elizabeth and the benefits of which that extend to all the people who will fear the Lord. This is the proper response to the gospel to magnify the Lord with your whole life. Do you agree with that? When you realize how God has blessed you through Christ, the impulse must be the same as Mary's, to magnify the Lord. When you see God for who he is and see yourself for who you are, what other response makes sense? But to magnify the Lord. Charles Spurgeon on this passage, when he was preaching, he said, this magnifying of the Lord is an occupation to be taken up by all Christians. Do not let us think little of it. To magnify the Lord seems to me the grandest thing we mortals do. For, as I have already said, is the occupation of heaven. When the saints of the Most High pass into their glorified state, they have nothing else to do but to magnify the Lord. Mary can't help but to rejoice without inhibition and to magnify the Lord, not only because of what he has done and will do personally for her, but what he will do for the whole world. She magnifies. She puts the spotlight on him. She points to, she sings about God and his kindness and his providential plan to break the Savior of the world into space and time and to include regular people who have nothing to commend themselves to him to do it. And should not this magnification of the Lord not be the whole purpose of the lives of every Christian? Should not every Christian who is a Christian by virtue of tasting and seeing that the Lord is unfathomably good make their chief priority to point to the Lord? Do you think? To make him known. To, to tell of his beauty and kindness and majesty. To use every part of their lives to do so. Let's think about it like this. There are two main instruments we think about when we think about magnifying something. There are microscopes, yes, and there are telescopes. Microscopes and magnifying glasses make something small bigger, right? Yes? That's their function. Telescopes, on the other hand, make something big begin to look as big as it really is. When I look up at the night sky, maybe I can see a planet very faintly, but when I look through a telescope at it, I start to understand just how big it truly is. I don't make it bigger. I just begin to realize its enormity. 
When we magnify the Lord, we don't make a small God look bigger than he is. Rather, we make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. This is the chief aim of the Christian, to see and dwell on God so that we could see how awesome he is and show others the same. Do you realize that Mary's Magnificat is a song wherein almost every single word is a biblical quotation? Almost every word. Mary may be young, she may be humble, from humble origin, she may be at the bottom of the social ladder, she may not be esteemed by society in which she lives, but she knows her Bible. And, and what has her being steeped in Scripture shown her? How incredible God is. How he keeps his promises. This is not the contents of the Magnificat, how he plans to make everything right. How he plans to reverse the power dynamics of the world through this promised Messiah. Mary knows these things not only through Gabriel's revelation, but through her knowledge of the word. And isn't that true for us too? We must be telescopes, not microscopes. We aren't magnifying something small like how we might pinch and zoom on an aspect of a picture on our smartphones. We're seeing for ourselves someone who is greater than we can fathom. Now we go to scriptures and we gather like this and we devote ourselves to the word so we can see more and more how incredible God is. That way we could turn around and magnify him in our whole lives, whether in our jobs or our relationships or our hobbies or our families, in every way and in every place saying, whatever I do, through it I will magnify the Lord. Because that's the thing, isn't it? If, if you don't diligently learn and see and be struck by the glory of God, you're, you're not going to magnify him to others, are you? But we must see his beauty for ourselves, and this should spill out to our whole lives. John Piper says of this, the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. So can I ask, friend, is that true of you? Now, make no mistake, you are and will magnify something. Do you agree with that? For you, what is it that's being magnified in your life? It could be many things, right? It could be magnifying yourself. This is the easiest thing and where our sinful nature typically takes us. It could be your kids. This is frequently done in our time where kids are the center of our lives, oftentimes being the controlling motivation of our life, oftentimes being uh, even true household leaders. It could be your wealth, your possessions. It could be your significant other. For us in ministry, it could be ironically the ministry itself rather than the Lord it's meant to point to. But so for you, what is it? What would those closest to you say you magnify the most in your life? What motivates you? What dictates your time and your speech and your actions? Would those who interact with you on a day-to-day -day basis say that you magnify the Lord above all things? Christian, you are made to magnify the Lord. Can I get a witness on this? This is what you were created and saved to do. That doesn't mean you should grin any of those other things I mentioned. But it does mean that your chief objective in all of life isn't to magnify people or things or yourself or your dope resume, but the Lord. For he is the only one, yes, worthy of magnification. Let's consider an illustration we used last week, but let's, let's consider it from a different angle, okay? I told you about how in A.D. 135, there was this Roman emperor named Hadrian, right? And he found out there was this uh, cave in Bethlehem where Christians believed their King Jesus was born and how he didn't like that people were worshiping a king that wasn't him. And so he had an altar built in the cave in Bethlehem for the Greek god Adonis. So essentially, 
Hadrian converted Jesus' birthplace into an idol shrine. A place meant to worship Jesus, he converted into a place for idols. And I wonder if we could do the same thing. And by that, I mean we were created and saved to be vessels for the Holy Spirit who leverage our lives to point to Jesus that he may be worshipped. Our hearts and lives are intended to be places for Christ, but we could quickly set up shrines for idols where Christ should be. You think that's true? And things we turn into idols can even be good things. Family, kids, work, possession, these are good things, but they can be easily turned into little gods. Instead, we must put things in their proper perspective and magnify he who alone deserves to be magnified. And we could do that by considering our next two points. So point number two, you magnify God because you see who he is and what he does. Point number two, you magnify God because you see who he is and what he does. Now, we touched on this in our first part, but we must expand it by considering what Mary says about God in this song. Now, notice again that the focus is on God, yes, what he is like and what he will do. While Mary does talk about what he does for people, the fact remains that he is the one who is accomplishing these things, yes? (coughs) And he's doing so for the most vulnerable of the world. David Garland says this, Mary's hem of praise has God as the subject of the verbs. It is therefore not a revolutionary call to human action, but a celebration of God's action. Indeed, God's dramatic work is against those who would take power into their own hands. Mary says that God is not this far-flung deity of every other religion who is like unconcerned with the affairs of the world or the plight of the weak. Is that not the God of every other religion? He's like detached, does not care. She says, verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his slave. He looks, yes, he sees, he considers, but he looks with care and concern. The incarnation of Jesus tells us that without a shadow of a doubt, yes, God cares about people, right? People have rebelled against him since Genesis 3. They have rejected his rule. They have attempted to take him off his throne. They have thumbed their nose at his statutes, have proclaimed that they would make better gods than him. They have exalted themselves and magnified themselves over against him and more. And what all that means is that he would be right and just and justified to crush man under his sovereign boot and send them away forever. Would he not be justified in doing that? And he wouldn't lose an ounce of holiness or goodness. But he was not content with that, was he? Instead, he looked on man's lowly estate and he did the unthinkable He himself took on flesh to condescend to save wayward man. Is that not alone worthy of magnifying him? But this God who is holy and mighty also intends to reverse the systems of the world and flip them utterly on their heads, doesn't he? Daryl Bach put it well. He said, what God will do is like what God always does. But Mary is interested in what Jesus' coming will mean. In a real way, God is setting up a new world order. Those who are on his side can look for a reversal of their current fortune. Like, one cannot help but read the Magnificat and see that, right? That's pretty plain, isn't it? The systems of the world esteem those who already have a lot. Is that true? They esteem and celebrate the wealthy, right? The put together, the powerful, the well-to-do. Why else are there a thousand award shows on TV every year that's watched by millions? It's basically what? Good-looking rich people giving each other awards and telling one another how awesome they are, and us ordinary plebes eat it up, right? The world doesn't celebrate the poor, do they? Come on. Do they celebrate the marginalized and the lowly? The only time the world celebrates someone who comes from low status is when they work their way to make themselves something the world prizes. The world doesn't prize the poor in themselves. They look on them with derision, like, you know, this is true, 
right? We want to keep immigrants out and portray the poor as a suck on society. Is that not what we do? Y'all are uncomfortable. You should be because the Magnificat is saying these things. The Magnificat flies right in the face of these worldly impulses and ethics. Because what does Mary say the mighty and holy God does? He looks at the humble and regards their estate. He has mercy for those who fear him. He has strength in his arm with which he scatters the proud and the haughty. He brings down the mighty from their throne. He doesn't exalt them. He instead exalts the humble. He fills the hungry. He sends away the full. He remembers mercy and helps those who come to him with their empty hands. Now, Mary is not saying that all wealthy or powerful are wholesale automatically bad. Okay, that's not what she's saying. The mighty are those who rule to serve their own self-interest. The rich are those who deprive others. What the Magnificat is saying is that the powerful and wealthy who act as though they have no need for God. Those who oppress the weak, those who are arrogant and prideful, those are the ones who God opposes. D.L. Moody said, God sends none away empty but those who are full of themselves. Again, this is why a theme of Luke is to warn against the dangers of wealth. Again, like, money is not in itself bad, right? I mean, it's an inanimate object. It can't be bad. But wealth and power can cause one to easily become an idolater, worshiping their money or status and willing to do anything to keep it, or becoming arrogant thinking that they are the cause of what they have, leaving God out of the equation because they depend on themselves and feel they have no need for anything or anyone outside of themselves. I mean, with that in mind, the Magnificat makes sense, doesn't it? How could God be partial to the things which in our world most often than not substitute for God rather than our pointers to him. Vast numbers of people have perished because they have been enamored with pride, power, and wealth. So of course, God opposes and warns against that which makes people full of themselves. That just makes sense, right? And things that put themselves are the things in God's place. Think about the rich young ruler. You guys know that story well, don't you? What's, the, what's his problem? He's rich. He's young. And what? He's a ruler. <laughs> He's powerful. He's got it all going on. But he wants to know how to have eternal life. And so he goes up to Jesus, <coughs> and he asks, how can I have eternal life? So Jesus goes through, remember, these lists of commandments, right? And what, is the, what does the rich young ruler do? Oh, yeah, I've kept all of those from my youth, right? Homeboy is arrogant, right? He's haughty, thinking he's been able to keep the law. And so Jesus says, one thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor then your treasure will be in heaven and follow me. Then what happens? You guys know the story, don't you? When he heard these things, this is what Luke says, when he heard these things, he became very sad. Why, Luke? For he was extremely rich. (laughs) His love of his stuff kept him away from eternal life because the cost of following Jesus was just too high. Luke doesn't include this story for no reason. He's showing us the dangers of having stuff and them having us. God opposes such things. He opposes the wealthy who arrogantly believe they have no need for God. He opposes those who have power and don't use it to benefit the weak. He opposes those who have power and use it to crush the disadvantaged. But neither, don't you see, is this him an affirmation of all poor as if being poor is equal to being holy. That's not what it's saying either. You notice the key in the Magnificat for those God esteems highly are the humble who fear him. The hungry who look to him to supply their needs. God's gracious mercy comes upon the humble devout, such as Mary, who fear him. Which is another way of saying they reverently obey him. They look to him as provider. They see themselves as recipients of needed mercy. They rejoice in him regardless of their circumstances. Do you see? (coughs) But now, consider the context in which Mary sings this song. Because this song is very good news. Is it? Is this song good news? Because if, if we read this song and think it's not good news, perhaps we're identifying with the wrong people in it. 
The people of Israel are being ruled by an evil and repressive pagan regime. A look back at Israel's history before this shows that things like this happened many times before, right? And there's no hope for Israel to, to find their way out from under Rome's oppressive boot. How can they be saved? Was there any hope for reversal? Where was God in all this? After all, we haven't heard from him in over 400 years. Others have tried to save Israel. You know, about 160 years before Mary sings this song, there's this fellow named Judah Maccabee, and he was a military, Jewish military leader. He tried, he got sick of being oppressed by their overlords, so he led a revolt, an armed revolt against their oppressors, and people thought, hey, maybe this guy's the Messiah. And they even minted money with his likeness on it. You know what happened to him? You could guess. His revolution, it failed. He was killed in battle. And you know what else? He stayed dead. (laughs) Why is the Magnificat good news? Because it tells us that God sees the plight of the oppressed and he will reverse their status and everyone who oppresses them will in fact meet his holy recompense. While those who are oppressed and look to him will be vindicated. But unlike Maccabee, the true Messiah will not fail. Why? Because he's not just some guy. He's not just some charismatic military leader. He is, verse 47, God, my Savior. He is, verse 49, he who is mighty. He is, verse 49, he who is holy. He is, verse 51, the strong one who can even discern the thoughts of prideful hearts. He is, verse 52, one who is capable of removing the mighty from their thrones. Do you see? This is good news. For anyone who looks around at the state of the world, at the injustice, is there injustice in our world? And the crooked structures and the oppression and wonders, will they get away with it forever? Because this is the clarion that God sees and God knows and God cares and God is going to do something about it. God's not watching the pains of people with detached eyes and heart. He sees and he's so intimately involved with his creation that he feels the pains of people. And the incarnation shows us this without a shadow of a doubt since God himself entered our pain and felt what we felt. And friend, you might not be someone who, you read this, you're like, I'm not, I'm not oppressed, right? Yeah, I'm not marginalized. I'm not poor. I'm not a victim of injustice, but you are a person, and thus you have been hurt, yes? You have been perhaps abused, taken advantage of, wounded. You have looked at the world and wondered why all these things are allowed to take place. You wondered if the wicked will ever get their comeuppance for how they treat people and thumb their nose at God, and into this space. The Magnificat enters with a megaphone saying that the coming of Christ means everything will be made right. Now, there are two things you may have not noticed that are key. For one, in verse 48, Mary says the phrase, from now on. And second, make a note of that if you write in your scripture journals. And second, much of the action of God, I don't know if you noticed this, but Mary describes are in past tense, even though they are future realities. That will be done through Jesus. From now on is an important phrase in Luke that is meant to tell us that significant change has, ta- change has taken place in God's plan so that from now on, things will be different. Why the past tense? Because these events, future events, are so certain that even though they're future events, they can be portrayed as past realities. That's how certain Mary is in God's future reversal in the coming kingdom in its fullness. The Magnificat is telling us that whatever our lot in this sinful, fallen world, those who fear God can expect vindication. Garland said it so well. He said, these words from Jesus' mother should keep this baby from simply being gazed upon and adored. They create disturbing ripples that rock the placid waters of the comfortable who think all is right with the world, with God safely tucked away in heaven and oblivious to injustice on earth. Through Mary, we hear the insistent voice of the marginalized ringing out a challenge from on high to those entrenched in their seemingly impenetrable seats of temporal power. 
God is the mighty one who sovereignly rules and has executed a plan through Christ to reverse the curse and make everything right. Is there better news than that? Mary is saying for certain, God's Messiah is coming. God's Messiah is coming, and he's taking his rightful place as king of the universe. And he's going to vanquish his foes through unexpected means and will one day bring his kingdom in fullness where justice will be done and the first will be last and the last will be first. Is that not reason to magnify the Lord in all aspects of our lives? Well, here's another one, point number three. And lastly, you magnify God because you see who you are. You see who you are. Once you see God for who he is, you can't help but realize who you are. Truly, it should be very difficult for us to see who God is and be the arrogant, self-aggrandizing sort. Yes? How can you magnify yourself when you see God for who he is? Shouldn't that alone cause us to be humble? I mean, who is it that we should see ourselves as in this song? Should we not be identifying with the humble? The servant? Those who fear him? Those who are in desperate need of mercy? Those who are hungry? We should look at this and say, look what he's done for me. And we should be astonished that, at that because we know full well what we deserve. And should therefore be overwhelmed with gratitude at the lengths God has gone to pour out his mercy on us. Do you see the amount of humility in this text and in this scene? It pours out. Humility is the natural product of reflection about who God is. Further, we see that pride is the cause of the downfall of God's enemies. That the self-exaltation is key to sinfulness. So that what's the opposite of that? It's humility that sees God for who he is sees ourselves for who we are, and then turns and magnifies so great a merciful a God who would regard our helpless estate and shed his own blood for our souls, as the old hymn says. Do you see the humility in Elizabeth's words? You see what she says in verse 43? Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's wondering, why of all people... She gets a visit from the Lord <laughs> and his earthly mother. She wants to know what she did to deserve being honored in such a way. Elizabeth is utterly amazed. She can't believe that the mother of her Lord would even come visit them. And they're kin. She, she hasn't even been, Jesus hasn't even been born yet, let alone died on her and the world's behalf and been buried and conquered the grave. And yet Elizabeth is in awe and wonder and bursts out in song because of this. She doesn't know what all this means. She doesn't even know what her son would grow up and do. And yet she is still in humble amazement at, the, at just the visiting of Jesus as an unborn baby. And Mary, what does she say of herself? She says that her soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. Why? It's right there, isn't it? Because he has looked on her humble estate. Mary could have been puffed up and prideful, right? Because she has been chosen to be the earthly mother of the long-awaited Messiah. And she even recognized that generation after generation will call her blessed. And yet, still, she says that she is of humble estate and the Lord's slave. And she says that she needs mercy from God just as much as everybody else. So if it's true of Mary, how much more true is it of you and I? Daryl Box says, humility is the natural product of reflection about who God is. In the ancient world, relationship with God was not a casual affair, as if God were a friendly neighbor. Rather, it was seen as an honor, and it called for a deep sense of respect, much like a person might respond to hosting a famous dignitary. After all, he is the creator who is responsible for our being part of his creation. Both Elizabeth and Mary have this posture of awe because they cannot believe that God would be so good to them as to use them for his purposes. Shouldn't we have that kind of awe? Friend, do you have that posture? Are you someone who's in constant amazement that God has saved you? 
Are you amazed that God would save a wretch like you and me? You know, there's this familiar sameness with Christmas season, isn't there? Uh, We hear the same songs on the radio and at the store every year. We get the same cheese ball commercials with the people just buying Lexuses for their spouses with the obscene bows. Who's doing that, by the way? We, We watch the same classic Christmas movies like Elf and Die Hard. We put up the same... (laughs) <laughs> we put up the same Nick Cage ornaments on our trees. We have, we have to get presents again, right? We, we have to do this thing and that every year, over and over again. It's like the same thing every year. And, and we hear the Christmas story every year. And we know it by heart. And we thus can easily be lulled to sleep by the same old, same old Christmas season. Isn't that true? And what can that cause in us? It can cause our jaded hearts to not be amazed by the incredible truths of Christmas and the gospel. We think we know it. So when we hear it, we aren't surprised by it anymore. We aren't thunderstruck. We aren't in awe that Creator God would enter our mess. We'll become a baby. Is there anything more vulnerable than that? And take on the wrath of God and die instead of us. Can, <coughs> can that, can, can it be that that doesn't get us excited anymore? Remember the question I asked at the beginning about what it would take for you to lose your inhibition and celebrate wildly? I bet one of those things that got you jumping and shouting and animated was a sports ball game played by children in Atlanta yesterday. Is that true? Does the gospel do that same thing for you too? And look, I'm not saying don't get excited for other things. Okay, my kids look at me strange when I shout at the TV during sports ball games, all right? But what about the gospel? Like, do we, have the, do we still have the humility and the awe and the wonder when we look to the glorious Christ who came to reverse the curse and to make all things right, including our hearts? Or do we look at the gospel and think, not only do we deserve to be saved, but we aren't that astounded anymore? You know, Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, says this, No Christian should ever be far from this astonishment that I, I of all people, should be loved and embraced by His grace. He continues, I would go so far as to say that this perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. What is Christianity? If you think Christianity is mainly going to church, believing a certain creed, and living a certain kind of life, then there will be no note of wonder and surprise about the fact that you are a believer. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? You will say, of course I am. It's hard work, but I'm doing it. Christianity is, in this view, something done by you, and there's no astonishment about being a Christian. However, if Christianity is something done for you and to you and in you, then there is a constant note of surprise and wonder. So if someone asks you if you're a Christian, you should not say, of course. There should be no of courseness about it. It would be more appropriate to say, yes, I am, and that's a miracle. Me, a Christian, who would have ever thought Yet he did it, and I am his. Don't you see that the only people whose souls can truly magnify the Lord are people like Elizabeth and Mary? People who acknowledge their lowly estate and are overwhelmed by the condescension of God in the flesh. We need to cultivate the humility to see ourselves for who we truly are, which is people who are in desperate need of mercy. And people who should fear God with a holy fear and people who need strength and rescue from outside of ourselves. How can we be filled, like it says in verse 53, if we don't admit that we're empty and hungry and helpless without God's nourishment? Augustine once said, for those who would learn God's way, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. This text should cause us to see ourselves differently. Don't you think? 
and it should cause us to see the world differently. The Magnificat shows us that Jesus' kingdom is the exact opposite of the kingdoms of the earth. Like, who operates a kingdom like this? No one. This is the opposite of the kingdoms we're used to and comfortable with. It shows us that those in the world who feel the least loved, the least prioritized, the least esteemed, are precisely the ones that God loves, prioritizes, and esteems. In a reversal of the world's ethics, of the Darwinian survival of the fittest mentality, God reaches down through a humble Savior and says, I love those who see themselves as lowly sinners in need of a mighty Savior. And if we are citizens of this kingdom that Mary sings about, then we must ask ourselves a couple questions, right? Do I love who God loves? Do I reach those whom God calls me to reach? Does my life and my church reflect the ethics of the Magnificat in response to the gospel? What we have in the Magnificat is a promise. It's a promise from God who keeps his promises that if we come to him with empty hands and humble hearts, he will rescue us because we need rescue. That if we feel low and insignificant that God has looked upon us and has deemed us lovable because of Christ. We have the promise that every pain and injustice we feel and see will be made right by the only good and righteous and just king. Every ache, you guys ache? Get up and you stand up and your knees make weird noises, right? <laughs> you give that, I'm at that age right now, right? Where I stand up and I can't not do it without going, right? Every ache, every pain, every tear, every anxiety, every strained relationship, every injustice, every loved one taken too soon is a reminder that things are not as they are meant to be. And if that's where the story ended, that's not good news. But it is in our pain that Luke 1 shouts with a megaphone that God intends to make everything right through Christ. Maybe not in the way we want, in the timing we want, but in the, in the end, every sad thing will come untrue. And that's a promise from a God who can't break any and never has and doesn't plan to start. Mary's inviting us in to see that, yes, sometimes things look bleak, but not everything is as it appears, because the baby she will give birth to is the greatest king there ever was, and he plans to put everything right in the end. You know, after the sermon, in a few minutes, we're going to sing a song called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, one of my favorite Christmas songs. The story behind it and how it came to be written is pretty tragic, though. And I want to share this with you before we close. <clears throat> it was written by a, a gentleman named Henry, Henry Longfellow in 1860s. And Longfellow and his wife had six children, uh, one of whom had joined the Union Army during the Civil War, only months before he wrote the song, okay? And two years earlier, Longfellow's wife and mother of his six children had died after her dress had caught on fire. And Longfellow witnessed this, and he tried to put the fire out with a rug, and then he tried to use his own body, but to no avail. He suffered facial burns, which were so severe that he was unable to attend his wife's funeral, and he would grow a beard to hide his burned face. And at times feared that he would be sent to an asylum on account of his grief. Well, on November 27, 1863, two years after his wife had tragically died, while involved in a skirmish during the Battle of Mine Run campaign, Longfellow's oldest son, Charlie, was shot through the left shoulder, and the bullet exited under his right shoulder blade. It traveled across his back and skimmed his spine. And Charlie avoided being paralyzed by less than an inch. On Christmas Day, 1863, Longfellow, 
57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of which had nearly been paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and dissonance of his own heart and the world he observed around him. And he heard the bells, literally like heard the Christmas bells on that December day, and people were singing peace on earth. But he observed the world and injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of this optimistic outlook. And this is what he wrote in part. He said, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Longfellow went from saying, there is no peace on earth as he observed and felt the injustice and hatred and violence of the world, to saying, God is not dead, and the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, and there will be peace on earth. This is what the Magnificat promises. This is why the Magnificat is so good. Those who Mary says will be brought low are those who practice injustice and oppress the vulnerable, where men like justice, God is perfectly just, and he will have victory. And he will be the hero of the oppressed. So the Magnificat says, like the song by Longfellow, that this event of God coming and taking on flesh is proof positive that God hears and God cares and that soon the wrong will fail and the right will prevail. God is promising that he will make all things right. And as we have seen throughout the first chapter and even in our text this morning, God keeps his promises. Do you believe that? This is something worthy of singing and shouting and losing our inhibitions over. This is something worthy of songs of joy and a life lived for such a glorious kingdom and so great a savior. Look what he did to get to you. He took on flesh. He was born in a barn. He was laid in a feeding trough, lived a a life of rejection, was executed by unjust government. (laughs) Even though he was perfectly innocent, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. He rose again with a promise that you can live again too. Not just in this life, but in the next two. The Magnificat is good news because it tells us that those who hurt and those who are forgotten and those who are voiceless and those who have nothing to offer and those whom the systems of the world are slanted against have found their champion. And their champion is none other than the king of all things. And for all of these reasons and a thousand more, we should live lives that magnify so great a God. Let's pray together.